Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. All right, we're entering a very exciting section of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians today. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God written, that it can be the word of God preached, so that we're brought to the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the divine logos, your last word. Grant that we would feast on him through our ears, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then later through our mouths as well as we feast on Jesus in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Grant us this grace now in this great meal of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that when there are ballot proposals put out that call for a simple yes or no vote, that the yeses probably have an immediate advantage, maybe a 5-10% head start, simply because... Human beings generally don't like to be associated with no or negativity. In Jesus Christ, but only in Jesus Christ, God is 100% the God of yes. Absolutely is this so. And when we stop and think about it, we all of a sudden realize that God never says no to anyone. Does a sinner want with all his heart the bread of life, the water and wine of life, Jesus Christ, the Lord, then God says, yes, you may have him. You want your sins forgiven? You want the glories of the life of a churchman? You may have it in Jesus. Does a reprobate person want his or her lusts fulfilled? Just do their own thing, be their own king, have their own way, do their own religion? God says, Yes, he turns them over to their own passions and sins and damnation. You can read about that in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Unlike the world's view of God, the Christian, biblical, reformed teaching is that he is no cosmic killjoy. He gives everybody everything they want all the time. So the real question becomes, what are our desires? What is it about us that we want? That's the real issue in life. God will give us what we want. So if we want Jesus, if we want the best things of life, the church, the gospel, the means of grace, worship, the Lord's Day, we may have all of those pristine and glorious blessings, but we must want them. Therefore, in light of this truth, Let us make it our goal this Resurrection Day to understand God to be absolutely positive toward us, Christ's church. With this in mind, we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Title of the sermon, The God of Yes. If you're new and you like to use the outline, 
we begin it here. So the doctrine of this text is God is always completely and totally honest with us, his church. And I believe this is a major thrust of today's scripture lesson, and that this truth is inherent in everything Paul always writes, but particularly here in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, where he's dealing with people that are concerned about his itinerary, his change of plans. Some people think by doing that he was wimping out, he was trying to get away from something. None of that was true, but we may touch on some of it even today. When we say that God is honest with us as church, we are in no way denying that he's also thoroughly transparent with all the rest of the world as well. He certainly is. But God has a special covenantal relationship with his church, the elect of God, the covenanted faithful people that can hear the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and stay faithful in that church, the redeemed ecclesia. Therefore, it is certainly accurate that we state that God is always completely and totally honest with us, his church. First, he does not give and then take away. Have you ever known people like that? They give you something and sometime later they ask for or demand it back. Now, I admit, I haven't had too many experiences, but I have one, I won't mention, none of you, of course, in mind that this actually happened. Very strange, very weird, but it's not that uncommon in the world. God isn't like that at all. Once he has baptized a soul by regeneration, applying the atonement of Jesus Christ to an elect heart that was in rebellion against him, that soul now baptized by water in the church's sacrament is never forsaken by God. His promises are never rescinded or revoked. And that soul, as well as they are able to do in the context of their life and in the context of the good preaching or teaching they might receive, depending on the nature and quality of the church they're part of, will also always find themselves in a place of assurance and pardon of sin because they know the God of grace who is able and willing to give them all the best. Now, someone might say, what about sin after redemption? Does this not nullify God's faithfulness? Do we have to go back to the fourth century idea that you had to wait to be baptized till you're almost dead to wash away your sins because if you didn't, you're in trouble in eternity? No, none of that's true. God is faithful to his people all the time, even as we sin. I like Martin Luther's wonderful understanding of a sinner's righteousness in Christ alone to essentially allow these two words to describe all those people who are truly in Christ Jesus and who love God through him. Those two words are sinner or justified slash sinner with nothing between them but a slash. Justified sinner. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Someone else might say, well, Pastor, what about this grace doctrine that you preach? Does it not encourage sin? Doesn't it tell people they can just do all the sins they want? Then you already tell them that God lets people do whatever they want. All that's true. But in a truly regenerate Christian, our desire is to hate sin and love God. Paul had the same problem where they accosted him in Romans 3.8 by saying, hey, if you preach this grace, won't that cause sin to abound? And he said, God forbid, may it never be. For the true children of God, that's not a problem. God is always completely and totally honest with us as church. 
He does not give and then take away, and he does not love us and then forsake us. You know, the human sinners outside of Christ don't know anything about love. They've never experienced it. They've never felt it. They've never shown it. But there is a false alleged love, and often they do that and then forsake it. But God never does that. Whomever God loves, he always loves, and in the proper and perfect nature, order, and measure. And this love is always brokered in and through his glorious son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has always loved his elect church, even though after our conceptions and before our regenerations, as Augustine taught, he both in some marvelous way loved and hated us at the same time. But then upon our regenerations in Christ, he eternally loves us completely, as he did even from eternity. God even loves all the good creation, 1 Timothy 4.4. Everything he made was created good. And that would, we would even be able to say that includes reprobate angels and humans. But he loves them creationally and still throws them into hell on the last day. Whereas he loves his church covenantally and in the greatest and most glorious and wonderful sense. And it should always be premised on the fact that God always loves his eternally begotten son, who is now incarnated and has the wonderful title, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are loved in the beloved Jesus Christ the Lord, Ephesians 1. So let us now, dears consider that God's essential nature is to love. 1 John 4.16, we studied that a little while ago. And his love for his church in his beloved son is his greatest expression of love that is even possible. This explains the fall. It explains sin, wickedness, evil, everything. If those things didn't exist, God's greatest expressions of love could never have happened but they do exist, and you who are in Christ, in his church, are the objects of that love. What an honor. Let's look together now at these verses, 15 to 19. By the way, I have a typo on your outline there. It should say 15 to 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and study the ministry of the God of yes. We're going to look at the triune God's ministry in and through and amongst us, and we will also discuss the formal and informal ministry of the church and our members as well. In all these cases, we have a ministry of yes, but this would not be possible if our God was not a trinity of gospel affirmation. And it wouldn't be possible if our blessed Savior did not say yes to his heavenly Father by going to the cross and the resurrection on our, his church's behalf. Therefore, let us love, relish, and appreciate the ministry of the God of yes, which is committed to the church's best ends in Jesus, verses 15 through 17. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. <clears throat> was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So this whole thing about Paul's itinerary is a little bit confusing, a little interesting. He apparently had 
wanted to go there and he changed his plans, but it was according to God's will. And then some in Corinth were saying, hey, this, this guy is, uh, he's wishy-washy. He doesn't keep his word. They're, they're trying to find anything. Of course, that's always true of a faithful apostle or faithful pastor. People are always looking for something to attack them. And this was an easy uh, target, right? And Paul changes his mind, so let's go after him sort of thing. And these verses like that, and we're actually probably going to have to pick up on it next week when we look at a few more uh, texts on that very issue. But just prior to these verses, we saw how the Corinthian parish with Paul would boast of each other on the great judgment day, right? And that's a beautiful thing. Now here, Paul's in this itinerary thing, and he seems to have to correct some suspicion among some in the Corinthian congregation relative to his, Paul's, honor in the making of his plans. You know, it's always kind of sad when we have to defend ourselves for any reason, but sometimes it's necessary to defend oneself for the honor not so much of self, who are we, but for the glory and honor of God, who's called us to be his children. So there are times where it's appropriate to do that. It should be said, and obviously Paul's doing that here, and rightly so. Now, again, I don't know all the details of this itinerary he speaks of in 15 and 16, the verses, but I don't think that is really the germane point necessarily. Verse 17 is really where the apostle comes to his primary concern, and this has to do with his integrity with regard to all things Christ, his ministry, the gospel, and the church. Bottom line, Paul is not double-minded, saying things from both sides of his mouth. As ministers of the gospel, whether we're pastors, elders, deacons, or parishioners, we must be completely honest. We must speak God's words with integrity and honor when forthrightly straightforwardly, his words, and leave the results with him. We do not have the option of fearing man, Satan, the world, the flesh, demons, wicked people, or anyone else. We do not fear them. But all of this takes a miracle of God's grace. And Paul's a good example of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And all of it centers on his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the ministry of the God of yes is committed to the church's best ends in Jesus and is blessedly true and firm in Jesus, verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, Paul is asserting here that both God and himself and Christ's ministers with Paul do not equivocate, compromise, waffle, waver, or change the message. Paul didn't change the message for anybody. He didn't change anything for anybody. He was simply being faithful to God. Now, on the contrary, false apostles, hirelings, and wolves in sheep's clothing change their message all the time. They're simply out to fleece the flock and take what they can from them, rob and steal and take over God's people if they can. They do that a lot, but not the true messengers and ministers of God, including you who are faithful. So firm is our message of the gospel 
But Paul would say that even if he or an angel, not from hell but from heaven, would come down here and preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. He says it twice in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. So committed to Christ and his gospel are faithful ministers and in their stead, in their train, as their disciple, in those flocks that they serve, the people in them, so committed are we that we would rather die than give in to the world's false gospels. Every time you hear another one of those world's false gospels, just know it. it's false, throw it off. Never tinker with it. It shows reprobation. Contrast Paul with the Judaizers and the false apostles who infected the church in Corinth or other congregations, and in Paul you get a man of honor and integrity, while the liars and hypocrites are serving their own lusts. So even though you live in a world and a culture, especially a religious culture, filled with liars and lies, every, every time you turn around, you're hearing it. Lying has become the order of the day. Recognize this, that there's one place and one time, once a week, where you can come to a safe haven of rest and truth and derive in the house of prayer, the church, the true church of the living God, the truth and glory and grace of Jesus Christ. And then you can go into your week facing all those liars, all those lies, and you can, you can spot them a mile away, and you won't be hurt by that. The ministry of the God of yes is committed to the church's best ends in Jesus, is blessedly true and firm in Jesus, and finally is wondrously perfect in Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about, I'm glad that Paul had the itinerary snafu or the problems he had with all those plans and everything just for that verse to show up in the Bible. If that's what it took for God the Holy Spirit to scripturate that verse and the one that follows... Hey, Paul, it was worth it, man. Have all the problem with the travel agents you need. We'll take those verses. It's a glorious thing. Wonderful. Now, what Paul means by this expression will indeed get fleshed out even more in the next verse 20, but I do want to save a lot of that thunder for next week. So let's look at verse 19 on its face as we should. Look at it again. By the way, when... when in the ESV when it says, Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I. That means Silvanus, Timothy, and Paul did the preaching, okay? Some of your versions are a little clearer there. It was not yes and no, but in him, Christ, is, it is always yes. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? All the promises of God, oh, I'm giving my thunder away, are yes in Jesus Christ, verse 20. But looking at verse 19, we behold the glorious and gracious nature of God toward us in Jesus Christ. 
In effect, the Holy Spirit here is saying through Paul, the servant of God, that the person of our Lord Jesus Christ is the uniform and universal affirmation, affirmation of all God's good and perfect blessings to us as elect and redeemed church. This truth is wonderful. Jesus Christ is the exclusive affirmation of all God's promises. They're yes in him. We may grasp onto him, hold on to him, trust him, love him, live for him. God the Father did not send his beloved son here to say no to sinners. He came here to save sinners. Came here to say yes to sinners, real sinners. Sinners who sin, sinners who couldn't help but sin, sinners whose very nature it was to sin. Sinners, he came here to save them. Chief of sinners, like Paul, but sinners. He didn't come here to say no, he came here to say yes. To say yes to us in Christ alone. Yes, you are redeemed. Yes, you are justified. Yes, you are reconciled to God. Yes, you are adopted into his church family. Yes, you are completely forgiven in Christ, beloved church of God. It does not get any better than that. Let's do some application this morning. Consider how the true church responds to the God of yes. You know, it's not as easy as one might imagine for a sinner to say yes back to the God of glory who is holy, pure, perfect, just in every way. But that is exactly what the children of God get to do. Actually, we have no alternative. And all of us who, by God's grace alone, are in Christ, do say yes to him every time we come back here to church. And then throughout the week, we continue to say yes to him. Do we do it perfectly? No. That's because we're sinners and we need the God's grace which always says yes to us because all the promises of God are yes and amen to us in Christ. Lord willing, we're going to see now more clearly in this section that focuses on usefulness how the true church responds to the God of yes. First, by returning the favor in joyful and faithful love in Christ. You know, one of my all-time new favorite dead buddies is John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan theologian. This guy is absolutely great. I'm I'm reading a book right now. It's one of my all-time favorite books I've ever read. I can't even find a hard copy of it. Ryan will have to provide it. It's, it's on my little phone. I read type about that big, like 150 pages. It's called Christologia. Now, it starts off a little rough, okay? But if you, if you don't want to read the introduction, go straight to chapter 5, okay? <laughs> and then from there, you'll be hooked in the, uh, the rest of this history. Absolutely fantastic. Don't you love the Puritans? You know, when you think of the Puritans, I mean, they give us John Owen? And the Westminster Confession of Faith? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism? And the Westminster Larger Catechism? No wonder the world and Satan hate them so much, and ignorant Christians do too. But we have no excuse. We should thank God for these people. Be overjoyed that we're in the train of their wonderful heritage that they leave us. Enough addition, uh, editorial comment on the Puritans. But here's one of the quotes. I'm just going to give you one quote. 
Peak your interest, whet your appetite. John Owen, Christologia, he says, there is and ought to be in all believers a divine gracious love unto the person of Christ, immediately fixed on him, whereby they are excited unto and acted in all their obedience unto his authority, unquote. Owen is arguing in this entire book that it is our great privilege and honor and duty to love Jesus Christ. In the broader context, he teaches what I've been teaching you for years, that faith leads to love, which leads to obedience. And he also points out that faith must precede love. But love is the driving force. What do we want? Better said, who do we want? We may have Jesus. God will have love from his children. You know that? Why did God create the, the universe? To have beautiful stars and lots of neat things to look at? Yeah, he appreciates that. I'm sure he does. That's not the reason. God created the universe so it would fall in sin, and then the second person would come, become a human being, do the most grand and glorious act of love possible, dying a cross for elect, for sinners, not reprobate, but elect, who hated him, apply that love to them, and get love from them. Now, is our love perfect in this world? No. We call that sin. But it is growing in grace all the time. He will have it from even us, his struggling militant church. To what or to whom do you say yes? If you are a redeemed and forgiven churchman who trusts God in and through Jesus Christ alone for the atonement of your sins and souls, then accustom yourself from this moment on to saying yes to the God of grace and glory in Jesus Christ via your love for him, the incarnated second person. Will this always be facile or easy or even convenient for us in the fallen, difficult world in which we live? No, listen, dears, I know it's not. I'm not telling you it will be. I know it's not. And I'm in there with you. It's not going to be easy to always do that. But it does please God. And now let's consider how the true church responds to the God of yes by returning the favor and joyful and faithful love in Christ and by growing up in Christ through good times and bad. You know, we love the good times. We hate the bad ones. Rightly so. I mean, that makes sense. You know, but even our blessed Messiah had to traverse the cross before the resurrection glory. And even he, in his human nature, in Mark chapter 14, verse 35, asked his father while he was suffering agony in the Garden of Gethsemane if this cup might pass from him if it was possible. Even Jesus in his most grievous moments, relates exactly to you and to me, and suffered, but also then was glorified. Even our glorious Lord Jesus, according to Hebrews 5.8, learned obedience through the things which he suffered, just like we do. He set the perfect example for us. Therefore, as you and I go through both positive and negative times this week, let us do so with a living faith in Jesus and say yes to God our Father, even as Christ did to him for our greatest benefit.
The cross and the resurrection are before you this week, all of you. May we accept with grace from our Father's hand whatever he has for us, knowing that it is all yes and good and amen in Christ for us, for our betterment. Does the blood of Christ cleanse away the sins of elect, redeemed sinners? Yes. Does the resurrection of Jesus Christ bring forth the full validation and justification and righteousness of Christ applied to those same sinners? Yes. Believe on him. Love him today. Beloved, the God of yes is the good, true, and only God. In Jesus, let us always love the God of yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the God of yes, that you have given us every good and perfect gift in your son. All the promises of God find their yes in him. You establish us with Christ in him. You've sealed us with your Holy Spirit. You've baptized us into Christ, your church. We thank you that you've been all yes to us. May we return glorious praise and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.